Welcome to Cinema Talk, the podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Mike King. I'm a programmer here. While our campus theaters remain closed, the Cinematheque continues our series of free view-at-home movies with three features by the independent filmmaker Frank V. Ross. Audrey the Trainwreck from 2010, Tiger Tail in Blue from 2012, and Bloomin' Mud Shuffle from 2015. Characterized by UW-Madison's J.J. Murphy as character studies of couples and set entirely in the working-class Chicago suburbs where Ross lives, each of these three witty, low-budget features are chock-full of unforgettable characters and cutting observations. Together, they comprise a defiantly independent and very funny rant against the status quo. The Cinematheque is providing a limited number of opportunities to view Audrey the Trainwreck, Tiger Tail in Blue, and Bloomin' Mud Shuffle at home for free. To receive instructions on how to view at home, simply send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu with the subject line, Ross. Our guest this week is Frank V. Ross, the writer, director, and editor of these three films. Ross has joined us in person for the Wisconsin Film Festival multiple times, presenting Tiger Tail in Blue in 2013 and the world premiere of Bloom and Mud Shuffle at our 2015 festival. More recently, he joined us in 2018 for the world premiere of World of Facts, in which he appeared. Here's our conversation. Frank Ross, welcome to Cinema Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Thank you. So, um... One of the aspects of your filmmaking that I most appreciate is your writing, both in terms of the dialogue and structure and character. So I thought we might start there. Um, In the book, A Companion to American Indie Film, J.J. Murphy refers to your work as character studies of couples. And rather than hit conventional story beats, your films tend to explore a situation and their poetry is in the relationships between the characters. And I'm just curious how close this is to how you envision the films as you're writing them. Well, I, th- I think that probably comes out of the like what the scenes that I kind of run from writing, you know, like yeah. um, wh- whatever the stereotypical thing would be like if you're making a movie about um, a couple that's having an argument, one doesn't walk in on the other one sleeping and look at them adoringly for a little bit, like just cut that part out. Mm-hmm. Um, but just try to find the being in a bad mood and something like just setting you off and it ruins the morning, you know, like in, 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 in tiger tail and blue, you see a lot of the way their relationship is because they're just a little both irritated at each other, one more than the other. And one has to leave and trying to find a way to make that interesting to watch, I think is where I start you know, and just try to get as far as I can with that before, you know, doing the thing where they say exactly what's on their mind, you know, like those lines just get cut. You know? Sure. You take well, in Tiger out. Tail and Blue and in a lot of your movies, they have this kind of dual perspective that passes the narrative back and forth between the guy and the girl in the relationship. To some extent, all three of the movies we're showing do this. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a very natural way of pulling this off. So it doesn't feel so schematic. But I guess, you know, when you're writing it, how do you map all of that out? Um, I get you, you lean into the accidents, you know, and you write enough to make yourself lucky. Um, like, for example, like the shift in perspectives in Audrey when it goes from just Ron to Stacy, like that was found in, in the edit. Oh, really? Yeah, that was found in the edit. Uh, it was moving around a couple of dates because it used to get interrupted by another date. And um, 
just watching the flow didn't feel right because that's like, okay, now she's a part of it and let's just go with her for a little while, you know, and that that's where that was found. So like right there, like that's just like getting, getting lucky. But you, you also know. wrote those scenes that are individually with her. You know, it's not like you, you know, oh, I just happen to have this stuff. Like you, you know, you made those scenes happen. So you have this idea of switching it off before you get to the edit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess it, 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 it comes down to caring enough about one person's point of view and the other person's point of view. And when the two point of views come together, how they gel and how they, slap off each other you know like what mm -hmm. what deflects and what you know what shoots and what misses like i can't find the words for what i'm trying to say right now like what what clicks and what clacks i don't know <laughs> got it yeah you know but like it's starting with you know like if they're all going to be like a boy and a girl movie right mm -hmm. um each like each person has a job and like a temper and so does you know, and, and so does the lady, you know, um, in, in, in the movie. So I guess I'm just more focused on that and like trimming away the things that other people do better, which is characters saying what's on their mind. Exactly. You know, mm -hmm. like sometimes you're, you know, you're watching, I, I watch movies sometimes and characters have lines that are so smart in the moment. And I'm like, why, why even make the movie? Just write that down. <laughs> like, you, you just summed it all up so well, you know. Well, you don't. Your characters don't always even communicate through lines, right? Like I think mm -hmm. of the part in Audrey where he uh, gets all fed up with his George Foreman grill and just throws it <laughs> in the trash. You know, that's like a character moment that I, you know, really responded to. You know, but there's no mm -hmm. dialogue in that. No, no, but it says a lot <laughs> about his yeah. mood. <laughs> but then when he has to talk about it, he wants to buy the bigger one. You know, I think right. it was looking. It was looking for those moments in, you know, in in life where something breaks and it's an excuse to go do something else. Mm -hmm. You know, like I just, um, we just got a new garage door and in putting up the, 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 the molding around the garage door, all this, all these problems came up with the siding. And it's like, I know we need to get gutters. I've known that since we moved in and now we fucked up, got a new garage door. Now we get new, get new gutters. You know, right. it's, it's that way of like, the way life just keeps building on itself, mm -hmm. you know? For sure. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's the kind of stuff that I feel like is in your movies. You know, the, the, a lot of movie. you know, I'm interested in what you choose to leave in and leave out. Because as you've sort of alluded to in this, your films can be elliptical in leaving out the sort of big moments or the perfectly written moments. And instead, something like a garage door thing seems like it would be in your movies. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you focus on these like smaller events that actually take up most of our lives and we get to see your characters in lots of different situations. Um, how when you do say you... it that way, it seems so simple. <laughs> you just focus <laughs> on the little things that actually makes up our lives. Like, yeah, that's it. That's, that's, all, that's all you do. Well, I don't think it's simple exactly, but, you know, I mean, curious to know how you sort of line these up as you're scripting the movie. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I'm still following with with a grain of salt the three the three x structure as much as i can mm -hmm. you know like when i was like younger and like trying to figure out how, how to write movies and stuff like one thing i did that was really valuable was i, I just started watching movies with the time code hmm. on and i would write down what was happening um around you know like the halfway mark the 30 minutes i was like oh 30 minutes in something happens so you know it might seem like you know, the movies are just sort of meandering and going back and forth and stuff like that. But between 20 and 32 minutes, like something does happen to change the course of the story. It's just not your typical, 
you know, um, what's the, you know, uh, guy gets stuck in a tree, you know, <laughs> sort of guy gets stuck in a tree, tries to get him down and then he gets down. So it's, it's not as typical as that, but it's still following the same, you know, rising action and all that stuff. It's just a much different kind of action. I like you that know. your idea of a typical movie is a guy getting stuck in a tree. Well, I think I, I, think think I read that, that somewhere. I, I think <laughs> it's like, what's the three-act structure? It's like in the first act, uh, a guy climbs a tree and gets stuck. In the second act, he tries to get down, but he mm. gets him, but he winds up higher. And then the third act, he gets down. Got it. You know, so that's what I read that somewhere. Okay. <laughs> I believe you. Uh, I haven't read those kind of books. So in Tiger Tail and Blue, you add another dimension to your movies with this sort of uh, Boonwellian kind of casting trick where Rebecca Spence mm-hmm. plays two roles for most of the movie, except at a couple of critical moments. Um, and this device, you know, really deepens the meaning of the movie and invites us to look at something like infidelity through a different lens. And I'm just, you know, when in your writing of it did this sort of become part of how you were going to tell this story? For having Rebecca play both parts, it came to me that way. That was the idea. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I was like, I'll have Rebecca play both both roles. Um, and I don't know why the idea came to me that way. I was just like, and it, and it is typically the kind of thing that I would have like thought of and then not done because mm-hmm. it just seemed too much. So I just grabbed onto it and said, this is, this is going to be a weird one. You know, <laughs> well, it really works. And, you know, you're not afraid of letting us becoming confused. Sometimes you even play off of it. I think at certain moments, like when she's dropping him off after work, at least I got mixed up as to who was who um, mm-hmm. in that moment. And your other films have little things like this, too, like Bloom and Mud Shuffle kind of catches up with itself at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, but you use these tricks sparingly. You know, they don't really overwhelm what you're doing. Yeah. Well, that's just that's just I think that's like personal taste you know <laughs> like for like you you get confused in in tiger tail is you get specifically confused because you're about to figure out that um the um rebecca as the wife melody is always wearing a red hat mm-hmm. and as brandy it's a gray hat mm-hmm. and just before you figure that out she's wearing the gray hat in a dark car mm-hmm. so you can't see the hat so things like that like they're th- thought of as like setting up a joke you know and i think that they're used sparingly like yeah it's taste and stuff like that but it's because i'm the goal is never to trick you mm-hmm. you know the goal is to bring you in give you all the information you need for the punchline you know mm-hmm. like make you relate to it in such a way that the joke lands because jokes land better than dramatics do you know so i think that's why it's not like too much does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So all three of the movies we're showing are set among, you know, working class characters in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. And even though this is how much of the country lives, it's not a milieu we usually see in American independent cinema, which usually uh-huh. get these like haircut types and just so it's kind of art direction. You present us with a more recognizable kind of life, um, mm-hmm. people with unglamorous jobs in normal locations. I don't know if this is like a particular mission of yours or if these are just the kind of characters you're attracted to. Mm-hmm. I think it, once I started making the movies and people, other people started writing about them, like that's what they started to say that, you know, these are people from Chicago and they're, they're realistic and it reminds you of, um, 
you know, your, your own life and just the things they're saying about it. I was like, Oh, I'm going to lean into that because initially it's because I don't have money for locations, you know, like filmmaking is directly tied to money. There is no separating it. And I never had any for costumes other than clothes from target or Kohl's that we left the tags on and returned later. Um, if I was going to shoot somewhere, it was either without getting caught or somebody let us use that place, you know, that all three movies are pretty, you know, Cass Avenue and my hometown of Westmont is very well featured in all three of those movies. And I do that like intentionally, you know, um, I had somebody come up after a screening of Bloomin and tell me like, I recognize some of those awnings from your other movies. And I was like, yeah, that's cause they're there, you know? And I like the idea of it. It's changed a lot. Westmont, you know, since I started making movies, so that's in there a little bit. Nobody would ever notice because nobody cares about it. But yeah, I think a lot of that is tied to the budgetary constraints, you know, and I'm not trying to, uh, I say that, but also at the same time, like I grew up in the suburbs and whenever mm -hmm. you see the suburbs in film or television, it's either like, what's the word super stylized like uh stepford wives sure the opening the opening sequence of weeds yeah or like edward scissorhands or something edward like scissorhands yeah. exactly or like rural you know but just never like just these are white flight towns you know mm -hmm. like they're just 8 10 15 miles outside of like the main cities and that's where they are and that that's what they are so shoot them that way you know I think the movie Breaking Away was a big um, bell that went off in my head after I watched Breaking Away for the first time. Because I had to watch it with um, Carrie because she was writing a paper about it for college. So I watched it for like, I've never watched a movie like analytically before. And I watched it with like analytically. And I'm like, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> this movie, like <laughs> this, the feet are on the ground and they're just shooting Bloomington and it's amazing. And I love the way it looks, you know? So yeah, I, I mean, think from then on out, yeah. No, I think that there, you know, place really seems to matter in your movies. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I guess part of the reason I bring this up is because usually when we see these kinds of working class characters on screen, you know, there's like a sanctimoniousness or a sentimentality attached to them. They're like gazing plaintively out a bus window or whatever. <laughs> but your characters are like alive and impolite. And they're also just like busy, you know? I feel like we're... As likely to see them chase after the Metra as catch it. Um, right. You know, they got to hustle. They're giving each other rides all the time. They're saving up to pay the rent. And when they do have time to reflect, it usually comes out like a rant, um, mm -hmm. squeezed in between shifts or they're multitasking, doing it or whatever. And your characters are great ranters. They're really funny. Can you talk a bit about how you use rants as a kind of monologue in your movies? Oh, sure. I just, I think I... I am always constantly concerned concerned that I'm talking too much. Like that's me. <laughs> like when I'm, when I'm saying stuff, I'm always like I'm like I'm looking at somebody's eyes. I'm like, oh, they want me to shut the fuck up. Oh my god, just stop, just stop talking. You know. And I think like the closest thing, like Chuck in Bloom and Mud Shuffle, like where he's just talking and people aren't really paying attention to him. Just kind of, I think that's the closest I've ever gotten to how I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I sound, you know, a lot of the times. Um, 
but it just feels like sometimes you're with a friend and for whatever reason, like Danny's rant at the end of Audrey the Trainwreck, which seems um, to not fit in the movie, but it does. You're just sitting on a porch and like for a moment you solve all the problems. Mm-hmm. Like you just, you get angry enough to where it's like you get it and you broke it, you know, and you're not going to deal with it anymore, but you're going to get up tomorrow and go to work and still going to, you know, suffer from the, those things that you rant about. But for a minute, when you're when you're ranting, it just it feels right. Yeah, there's know? a release. I guess. Yeah, there's a release. Um, it's like talking shit about somebody. You know, it just it just kind of feels good sometimes. You know. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I was wondering how much of you is in these rants because they are always usually against the status quo. Like you mentioned, the end mm-hmm. of Audrey about the taking off your shoes at the airport somehow spins off into pretty much everything that's wrong with the world. Or you know, and there's they you get the sense that they are just frustrated at being cogs in a system with no real way out of the grind. Mm-hmm. Um, that's i mean no i mean that's that's it from from your lips to god's ears <laughs> <laughs> there's um there that's what it, i mean how much of me in it i think is just like every now and then i'll get a um an, an inkling of what a rant could be but then in in writing i try to shape it a little bit better mm-hmm. like like I, I hear life is a highway all the time at the <laughs> stores that song is atrocious yeah and so I just, I, you know, I'll just get that in there and try to weasel it, try to massage it into like into, into the movie, you know? And for Audrey, like one time I was at the airport and it was, I don't, I don't know, like all of the new regulations were still pretty fresh, mm-hmm. you know? And like the buzzers were happening. It's still before the body scanners, but like, you know, it was just right. In, it was right in a pocket of airport security that was, um, shoes off kind of thing. And I did see a, a mom telling his kid to take off the shoes and it did kind of, it did kind of bum me out. And I wrote something in my notebook because I was just, I was just, I just zoned out. I was probably tired from traveling or something and I left my belt on and something was beeping and the guy was like, what's going on? And I was like, my belt. And he was looking at me fun and I, funny. And I realized like, I probably, I had like tears in my eyes. You know, I was just like, just being upset and tired in the airport and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then on that flight or somewhere on the trip, um, I, I sat with the steward on the, on the airplane for a lot of the time, just talking with him. And he's the inspiration for the character of uh, uh, Scott that Danny plays. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like you, you take the the little personal experiences and you just try to mold them into something that's, you know, not exactly a part of your life, but something that, you know, might stick, you know, to to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like one of I think in Tiger Tail they have that line. Um, All I do is think of new ways to say the same old shit, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> that was an ad lib. Oh, really? Yeah. So I just, I just kind of, I did, I only did that monologue. Um, I only did it three times, um, into the, into the thing. And, and after I finished it the first time, I, I did, it didn't, I didn't feel right. I felt like this isn't, this isn't going to make the movie. I'm, I'm going to cut this. And I was like thinking that as I was doing it, you know, cause yeah. I had the thing memorized, you know, yeah. I was like, this isn't going in. It felt raw. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, and then just like all I do is try to think of the same, to say the same old shit. 
which is at the heart of that, you know, little, you know, little monologue, you know, which is just the beginning of Tiger Tail Blue is just trying to say, like, you remember these details from your life, but you don't remember the big picture sometimes. And sometimes mm -hmm. you remember the big picture and you don't remember the details. And that's just something that constantly bugs me. You know, it's it's all over the place, you know, for me. Moving into the actual, like, making of these movies, um, you were pretty much a one-man band for your first several features. Um, <laughs> but you used a cinematographer for the three we're showing. You had David Lowry, Shoot mm -hmm. Audrey, Mike Gabisser shot the next two. Mm -hmm. These are directors whose their own movies have much more precisely composed imagery than yours. Um, in your films, it seems like the camera kind of tries to just keep up with the actors and the performances are driving it. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm, how did you arrive at this style for your work? For using when, when I stopped shooting or, um, I guess more, you know, like your style has been consistent, whether you shot it or, you know, you had these other people shoot it and it seems like it's sort of your aesthetic. And I just am curious how you, you know, landed on it. It's more the person than it is like arriving at an aesthetic and all those things because like with with dave i watched the shorts that he shot and more of like the philosophy of some of his films and like his work ethic and how the, they looked i was like this guy i would work well with him you know and like we knew each other and stuff and i asked him to shoot it and he did it and 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 i didn't touch the camera at all for for, for any of those movies um i think i operated one shot in bloomin but that's it and like dave just said i'm gonna i'm gonna cram the frame and i want it to look like it's deteriorating and about to like melt and i just let him go and when it was done i was like holy shit this feels like one of my movies still mm -hmm. um so i was prepared for it not to because i was sick of reviews of the movies that I shot being very good reviews with like these little asterisks about how the films looked. Hmm. So I was like, fuck it. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not, I'm not going to bother anymore. Like I, I like the way they look, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, Hohokam in particular, I think, I think that movie looks awesome. And I like the frantic, uh, the, the camera keeping up with the actors. I kind of like that. Um, you know, there's a real needle to be threaded with, you know, not making it look cheesy. Like you can't really pan, you know, left or right dreamily, you know, when you have a handheld movie going. So it's just like, you know, keeping everything in tune. Mike's films look composed. Like sure. they have, they have classic framing and everything like that, but there's always something a little, a little off, a little more raw about it. And, you know, Dave's kind of the same way too. It's like, they look right, they're doing it right, but they have they have an identity. There's a little bit of their personality in the way they shoot. So it was more like a casting thing. You know, like they were they were right for the part. And like we spoke the same language too. Like for Tiger Tail, for shooting stuff that's her as one character and the other character, like how do you draw the distinction? Like and I said to Mike, I remember I said, like, how do we put a vignette around melody's story without putting a vignette around it and mm -hmm. i was like he just played with the color mm -hmm. you know everything is very bright and rich with uh brandy and everything's very static and um, um clinical you know with uh with, with melody and it's like okay let's go with that like just lean into that and 
things like that. So then you have the, you're kind of hamstringed by location Mm -hmm. also, which you don't have a wall you could take out. You don't have, you can't, you don't have time to rearrange all the furniture, you know, like Lonnie's apartment in Bloom and Shuffle, that's Will's apartment. Those are his sheets. That's his couch. That's where he put his, weirdly, that's where he put his TV, you know, like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know like it's strange where some people put their stuff you know well that's one of the things can't... i like about your movies i wanted to get into is the locations you know because they aren't so overly art directed you know these characters countertops are as cluttered with cell phone chargers as mine you know the, the apartments they're not like some showroom for vintage furniture like the, the stuff just feels like like it's someone's real apartment mm-hmm. um so i'm you know you can there's still a lot of real apartments you could choose from so you know what do you look for when you're making these movies well it depends on the thing like sometimes like for audrey the apartment the the place they live in is all wrong it was just the it was the only place i could get hmm. so we just made it darker in there you know um we made the uh, it was uh, a, a, a single lady. It was it was just Denise Blank's um, uh, townhome. So it was like if something was like overly feminine, it, we could either justify it in one way or just take it down, you know. And if you look, it, you don't see much of their actual apartment. You know, mm-hmm. you see their kitchen, which is a very stock kitchen. So I mean, that's one thing I would look for, like not too much personality. Like these are just these are the cabinets that came with. This is yeah. the oven that came with. You yeah. know. The rentals, for sure. Yeah, yeah, rentals and, um, uh, you know, like Will's furniture. It's like, he's like, you guys, could, you know, I could get rid of those chairs. I could put this away for you. That's what people would always say when I would come look at their place. <laughs> I could put that all away. I'd clean this up. It's like, no, don't, don't clean up. Don't, don't do anything. We'll just, we'll be in here, you know. If there's anything too personal, hide it, you know. Yeah. I remember one we shot in one house where he just said, you guys are shooting the bedroom, but there's a gun under the mattress. And I was like, well, can you just move the gun, you know? And he's like, yeah, 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 sure. And that's probably where I got the idea to to put the shotgun under Lonnie's bed. Right. I was going to say, you got guns under mattresses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's guns in the mattresses. I don't I don't own any guns, but there's there's guns in the, in the movies that just don't go off. You know? Yeah, right. <clears throat> One of the many kind of red herring type things that uh, I feel like you drop in here and there. Yeah, that's my that's, that's my favorite. Really? Is that is it it's something that you do kind of by design? Oh yeah, absolutely. Those are those are intentional little just little jokes, just little things to pull jokes you for in. you. <laughs> and for the and for the audience too. I mean I think if people, you know, get it, you know, like yeah. yeah, you know, it's even with even in Audrey with like the these things happen in threes, like these little incidents happening, like slipping and the egg and all that stuff. Like that's just that's just fun. That's just a way to I think it pulls you into the movie away other movies where it's a lot of people talking and not a lot of big things happening push you away mm-hmm. i think it brings you in because there's like a there's like a personality to it you know like um yeah there's a personality to it you know where it's, it's less like a lecture you know if there's some jokes going on absolutely your movies have tons of personality i mean that's one of the <laughs> things i really value about them I think, you know, the informal feel of the cinematography and these real world locations is probably one of the reasons that your movies are sometimes mistaken for being improvised. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's this false expectation where those kind of qualities equal improv. But as we've discussed, your films are scripted. Um, I wonder if you just talk about, you know, 
that sort of uh, dichotomy or misconception about your work? It's never bothered me. You know, like I think it's I think it's cool. Um, I think it says a lot about the actors too mm-hmm. that it makes it seem like off the cuff for them. Um, I learned how to write dialogue by writing bad dialogue and then getting on set and having like seeing actors try to say my lines out loud and you hear them out loud and you're like, Oh, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> you know? Um, don't 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 do that. Let's just I'm talking about like, you know, the films nobody's seen, like, you know, my first film or Oh my dear desire. I was like, let's get there and be like, okay, we can't do this. Let's just here's the Here's the rhetoric of the scene. Let's just talk it out because these lines are bad. Hmm. Um, I learned almost immediately, you know, you don't write words like, oh, and like, because people will just naturally put them in there. You know, um, sometimes it comes down to um, making something look like a monologue, you know, and just breaking it up with a bunch of, bunch of interjections and sometimes giving somebody else the lines and stuff and going back and forth. But I think it comes from, it, 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 it comes from writing bad and then hearing it out loud and being like, that's bad, (laughs) you know, to where you can, when I sit down to write now, I think like the dialogue just comes naturally in a way where it's like, it's like a, like, um, I think I've said this before somewhere, but it's like a tuning fork, Mm. you know, and you just keep it ringing right. You know, you just keep it right in tune. If it sounds off, if it feels off, it's going to be off when you get there, you know. Um, like, um, Alexia, while we were shooting Bloomin, I was reading the script of what we were going to do that day. And I read one line, and the way I had it punctuated, I was like, oh, she's that's going to be confusing. And I, like, rewrote it with different punctuation. And I was like, okay, does anybody need anything? She flipped the script and she was like, this line. And I'm like, hand her the index card. And I'm like, read this. She's like, oh, okay, got it. You know, so like sometimes it's just finding a rhythm of speech that's not there yet, you know, because uh, it's hard to, it's really hard for me to talk about that because it, it just comes out that way, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't want to sound like, I'm not trying to say, like I'm, I'm just naturally good at this sort of thing, but it's not something that I've thought about intellectually. How's that? Sure. Part of it is that, you know, how you work with the actors, your films have these great performances and it's really one of the main avenues that you, you know, get everything across through is the style of performance that these people deliver. So um, I'd like to hear you sort of describe what that part of the process is like for you. You know, how, how do you cast these people? Do you do a lot of rehearsing? How much leeway do these people have on set? Yeah, um, they have all the leeway that they want. And I think that that makes some people kind of hold tighter to the script. Um, casting for me has always been part like, you know, there, there's, I have a, like a you know, little stock of people that like I know and, and, and they get it and I know how they're going to be. And, you know, I don't don't really have to worry about them. And, you know, like a lot of times I just like to cast somebody I haven't met. Like I cast Rebecca and Audrey just based on what Allison told me. Um, and that was the first time we met was the day she showed up to shoot. And that's just fun for me, you know, like to be like, all right, let's, let's try to make this work because a lot of it is just getting out of the way. And I think finding where the awkward, beats and moments are and i usually let 
the actors block it themselves, you know? Mm. Um, and then I think a big part of directing, especially when you don't have rehearsal time and stuff like that, is just seeing where the hiccups are and just pointing it out to the actors. Like, you're getting messed up here because you're trying to go too fast. Or this is all too slow. We just need to go faster. That's why it feels weird. And then we just do it that way. And, you know, all of that. And then just, you know, making sure the energy's right and everything. And, yeah, there's there's a lot of weird casting stories. I, I'm curious also how this changes when you're in the movie because, you know, you're a lead character in Tiger Tail and um, what it's like to be directing and also appearing in the scene, if that affects... You know, obviously it affects your perspective, but how do you navigate that? Make sure you're present in the scene for your, make sure you're actually doing the acting. You know, that's the big, that's your, your bigger role. If you're going to be acting in the movie, that's the more important thing, you know, than, than being the director, I think. Um, but I think it's also a little bit of luck here too, because since, like you said, like being like a one man band or whatever you called it for the first parts of the movies, from writing to producing to acting to editing to all to, you know, to from the beginning to end has always felt like one step hmm. to me like it's all part of the process when you're editing when you're going to be your editor you're thinking about that while you're shooting mm -hmm. if you're going to be acting you're thinking about that when you're writing if you're you know what i mean like it's all it's all on one big arc and it was it I started off acting in stuff that I was directing and it, it would feel weird to do it any other way. And I mean, mm -hmm. like when I wasn't, you know, like a bigger part of, you know, the movies, it was like, oh, I'm just going to stand out here the whole time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I, just, I just don't have to do anything. Like I don't have to memorize lines. That's the other thing too, is, you know, like for Tiger Tail with Rebecca, I was like, I can't, I can't just be ad lib crazy. You know, mm -hmm. like I need to actually memorize the lines you know, and in memorizing the lines, I already found some of the mistakes that we were going to make on the day and, you know, stuff like that. And plus you're in the scene. So, I mean, you're kind of setting a tone just by how you start doing the scene, you know. Uh, you mentioned that you, um, you know, you view writing, directing and editing as all one big kind of continuum. And, you know, you've edited all of these movies uh, yourself. Your cutting is usually, you know, pretty brisk. You get in and out of scenes pretty quickly, generally, I would, mm -hmm. you know, which um, is nice. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, but, you know, you're so intimately familiar with the material. So I'm curious, you know, how much these films can be shaped in post. Do you generally know how it's all going to go at that point? Or um, do you find that you have a lot of flexibility? I think I'm pretty flexible. Um, I, I mean, my editing is pretty brisk. In fact, the last, I often have stuff like two strangled like mm. too brisk and you know like mike or dave or you know joe somebody will watch a movie and be like yeah you gotta let that breathe you gotta mm. you gotta let that just let it go but i'm phobic about them being boring which is probably where a lot of the red herring stuff comes from too like i want them to be enjoyable to watch like fun to rewatch, even mm -hmm. you know um so like i just try to keep them like okay go 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 you know and just keep the story moving um but like for example, like Bloom and Mud Shuffle, that movie, the script is completely out of order. Um, I was reading um, uh, Slaughterhouse Five mm -hmm. at the same time as I was writing it, and you know, like, in, like he'll open a door and then just be in a different time. So, like a lot of that movie in the script was like them walking through one door and then coming through another one, like months later, you know, and it didn't work at all. 
when in like the final cut it was just like this is bad there were no markers i would assume like you know three months later or anything like that. Just, yeah there were no markers and it yeah, just right. didn't it just didn't play so it was actually joe's idea to put it back in order and then see what we had and that's where the you know the, the it always had that circular structure to it where he kind of it's all kind of like a blur right back to the same day mm-hmm. um but that worked better when the whole movie was just chronological you know Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, you got, you got to find the best way to make the choices. It's not about upholding your, the, the vision, whatever bullshit you thought you had when you were writing it, you know, it's about realizing how wrong you were when you were writing it, you know, um, (laughs) everything you did wrong while you were shooting it and just trying to salvage it, you know, (laughs) while you're editing it. Is there a point of that process that you feel like is the, you know, like this is where I'm really making the movie? Like, does it feel like in editing, you know, like you're really sort of nailing it down um, as opposed to the other parts? Is there a part of it that you find more satisfying? Editing was always my favorite. So take that for what it's worth. Editing was my favorite part of it. You know, that's because I think there's like the technical hands-on aspect to it, but it's also very much like writing in the sense that you're like putting it together and you're cutting lines now and you're, you know, connecting lines and finding glances the way you can't while you're writing and stuff like that and finding mistakes and, and, um, you know, like there's a lot as much as possible, there's a lot of, um, you know, shots in my movies that aren't reactions to the actual thing, you know, like mm. there's a lot of piecemealing them together and putting them together. You know, in fact, in Bloom and Mud Shuffle, um, you can see um, PJ say not usable. Um, really? He, he mouths the words not usable in That's one amazing. of the shots. I just took out that audio, put it in because it was a, it was the better take. You know? <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, well, I I like that kind of rough hewn that that sort that that sort of um uh, sort of tactile but like not perfectly clean you know like pulled together cobbled together structured you know film that looks like something that was made mm-hmm. you know that's uh that's how I like them to to feel you know absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned that you have this sort of, you know, people that you've worked with time and again, like Rebecca Spence. Um, Another collaborator who you've worked with on each of these three movies is John Medeski. Mm -hmm. Um, And he composed the music for all three of them. As best I can tell, he doesn't really do a lot of this kind of music otherwise. He's mostly known for like his various bands and stuff. Yeah. Um, How did you two hook up and what is your working relationship like? Um, the, how do we hook up? Uh, I wanted him to score present company. Um, and I wrote him, but it was late in the process. And it was kind of like, I wanted him to, you know, watch the movie and just sort of like improvise some, you know, some key strokes and stuff. But it was like the movie was, we already had like a premiere date and all this stuff. Uh, so Tony stepped up and did, you know, a great job with, um, finding the, like the xylophone kind of playful sound in present company but then for audrey um i contacted him through his agent um uh right away and just kind of kept him up to speed the whole time and what i always wanted was just like a session and i'll have the the parts where i think the music should go and then you know we'll just talk it out and um i remember 
trying like talking to him at with audrey and i was like is this making any sense he's like just keep talking just keep talking like unless you're going to tell me what to play on the piano just keep talking <laughs> so he let me just sort of like you know walk like walk in circles around him and when he did something i liked i would just sort of jump up and down and then you know his his mind works in such a way to where it's like these three notes in a row that would get lost in anybody else's mind are locked in there and he's you can see him composing the line you know through it he can recreate the songs with little variations you know with like these little bursts and stuff and it's just it's magic to watch because you're like what the fuck is how is he doing this you know because it's uh, like there's a lot of sounds in um in bloomin and and in in audrey which are just like i remember i said to him like you know how when you touch the piano it sounds really good and he's like like this <laughs> and he just like touched it i was like yes that just i want to sound like that you know and you hear like, a little like tring, tring. he's like oh okay so we called those like raindrops so then you build a language, you know, it's like, okay, like raindrops into like a Keith Jarrett kind of, you know, uh, thing until, and then he, once he gets it in his mind, what he's supposed to be doing, he tries to get it right. Hmm. Then I'm like, okay, you just get your bit right. And then I go home with a bunch of different takes and just, you know, try to, you know, listen to the, what are the, what are the best takes and what works best under the, the film and stuff. But for me, that's what it always um what like the 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 video aspect of it and stuff like you know because happy apple is a trio they scored hohokam and i was like there's just too many instruments hmm. and like this needs to be like one instrument and not a guitar you know and just he's my favorite piano player in the world so i just contacted him you know i said you know like wh whoever said don't meet your heroes was just wrong you should totally do that, you know, because they're, they're great. Like he's just a, he's a good dude. And that's about it. We, we do our session and, you know, there'll be an email every now and then. And, um, I remember last time for, for Bloomin, I was like, you know, I'm really looking for more of a tone. And he goes, well, you know, I like him. I like, he likes the movies cause they don't have tone. So I think he likes the movies without music. Hmm. So that's the versions he likes. And he sees long rough cuts. You know, and he starts thinking too and everything like that. In fact, for Tiger Tail, um, I wanted a clarinet and he was like, well, why don't I do it? But with like a clarinet setting on a keyboard. And I was like, that's great. Um, but then he watched the movie and he's like, yeah, dude, you need a clarinet. <laughs> you know, like I thought just a clarinet, but then we showed up at uh, Justin's house and he had a, uh, a Wurlitzer with like a broken B flat key. Like it kind of buzzed. So he was like, ooh. I kind of like it. So like Tiger Tail's score is kind of built around this broken, um, I think it's a B flat, broken B flat key on a, I don't know, Wurlitzer piano, you know? That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's indicative of the way we shoot the films and, you know, like the, the whole attitude of, 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 of the, of the movies, you know? But when I hear like they they did that version of a uh, old Lang Syne, Mm -hmm. for tiger tail and blue you know like i remember um i had the sheet music for it because i didn't know and i was like i brought the sheet <laughs> and they both just kind of looked at me like yeah no dude we don't need that <laughs> <laughs> and they did that like i was like i want it stanky just a stanky <laughs> a stanky old lang syne and i just it gives me chills every time i hear it when you know 
That's great. Like the music they came up for it with, you know? So, yeah. It's something that I could never like film and capture, you know, like the language that I've seen movies that do it, you know, like they build a language of like bump, but the bump, but the bump, bump. And then, you know, that becomes the, the, the bump dumps you know, and then you start talking like that, you know? So three raindrops into the bump dump you know, yeah. you know, that's how music goes, you know? Um, rewatching these movies, you know, with the past few days, they, I gotta say, they seem better now than ever. Um, that's and awesome. your voice is missed in contemporary indie film landscape. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you've been involved in some other productions recently, but it's been a minute since we've gotten to see a new Frank Ross movie. Yeah. Um, the independent film world has never been really hospitable to movies like these and <laughs> probably even less so now, but I'm curious, you know, what kind of outlets you've had for your creativity over the past few years? Um, uh, uh, yeah, I've, I, I've been writing. Um, I, I, uh, quit waiting tables and, uh, I wrote a novel. It took me about four years. Um, it went and did the rounds. Now I'm, I'm uh, I got a novel in a drawer, mm -hmm. so to speak, <laughs> which my agent says an, is can be an asset. And I'm I'm editing and finishing up the the second one. Wow. So I've been yeah I've been writing like uh, every day. And is making novels. This is probably has this been a long time ambition of yours, just as much as being a filmmaker. <sighs> That's hard to say. It's been a long time ambition of Carrie, who has told me for a long time that I need to write a novel, I need to write a book, because not just because she hates reading screenplays, but um, you know, my screenplays were written to be read by people who weren't going to have time to rehearse. Hmm. So there need it needed to be communicated in the script what exactly we were doing what they were supposed to be saying, what the other people were feeling. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you needed to read that script and show up as if you had already rehearsed it. So I think that was a good exercise in it, but I definitely was scared to write a novel, scared to start something like that. Yeah. You know, having never, you know, I like making movies, mm -hmm. you know, but, uh, somebody said to me when I said like, but I don't want to stop making movies. Somebody just said to me like, why is this decision permanent? Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, right. Um, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, but I, I just, I just didn't think of it that way. You know, um, I don't, there's no such thing as multitasking. So therefore I am not a multitasker and I've just been, it's been really fun awesome. writing these books and stuff. So, is there a freedom there that you get, you know, that you can't have, you know, I mean, there's no budget limitations in a novel. I imagine that was a struggle before. Yeah. Yeah. There's in, a, in, I mean, and the novels aren't that much different from like a screenplay that I would write. There's just more writing in it. There's more, um, you know, descriptions of stuff. And I think more so than like what the imagination can do there's a, a, a very good feeling in what you're doing, not being directly connected to money. Mm. When you're writing a script, um, like in Bloom and Mud Shuffle, I envisioned the, well, not envisioned, I wrote a much different scene with a much more crowded bar in a much more corporate looking bar. Um, like ideally like a Buffalo Wild Wings, mm -hmm. you know, and there was no way we could fill it up with enough people. 
you know, there was no way we could get the clearances, you know? Um, and it's, that's not just a disappointment. Like I love the scene. It shot at Michael Anthony's in Berwyn. I love that place. I love the, the day drinking, mm-hmm. you know, I love just like, I love everything about it. I wouldn't have it any other way. So it's, but I like that just, it's nice to have, if I could have written something and not have what comes out be directly tied to money. You know, because it's everything. You can't separate them. You know, and Bloom on My Shelf was the biggest budget I ever had, and I still didn't have any money for anything. <laughs> you know, because it's because it's all there. So I think more than more so than imagination, it's just not being tied to that. For sure, you know? it's like losing. It's like a boss you fucking hate. You know, <laughs> I feel I feel like I lost. You know, like I don't work for this asshole anymore. Right. So that's what it feels like. Well, I really want to thank you for sharing these movies with us and joining us today. Um, I hope people watch them, man. It's nice to know that, you know, you're rewatching them and they're alive in some way, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, man. No, thanks for, thank, I honestly thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but still, you're very welcome.